Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Conversations on Dance is generously supported by Yumiko. The Yumiko Heather Collection is now available. The Heather Collection is made from a high-performance fabric that features a settled flecked color effect. This ready-to-wear collection offers nine styles of leotards and four color options, including gray, pink, blue, and purple. If you haven't yet seen this newest collection, you have to click around yumiko.com to see these gorgeous looks for yourself. Stay up to date on everything Yumiko by following them on Instagram at yumiko and at yumikoworld. This episode is brought to you by the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are joined by Kristen Hanna and Constantine Becker of the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival. Kristen and Constantine met 20 years ago as students at American Ballet Theater. Constantine's career as both choreographer and dancer has led him to the Hamburg Ballet School and the Royal Danish Ballet, amongst others, as well as co-founding his own company, Cross Connection Ballet, and the Copenhagen International Choreography Competition in 2007. Kristen has danced with Oakland Ballet, Cincinnati Ballet, participated in numerous independent projects, and is a founding member of the New Chamber Ballet NYC, where she brought Constantine as guest choreographer in 2003. Six years ago, they started the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival in Kristen's hometown of Lake Tahoe, California. For more information on the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival, which is being held July 24th through 26th, visit LakeTahoeDanceCollective.org. Thank you both for joining us today. We're so excited to have you here with us. We know it's a little bit early, but we appreciate being able to make this connection and I'll sit down to talk this morning. Um, So just to get started, let's talk about how you both got your beginnings in dance. Do you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> Since you started first. <laughs> oh. Um, well, it's kind of a common story, but um, 
my my mom VHS recorded um, the Gelsey and Misha Nutcracker on PBS, and I must have watched that videotape a good hundred times at the age of four. Um, so she enrolled me in ballet class at the Truckee Rec Center, and um, it, you know where I grew up in Lake Tahoe is three and a half hours from San Francisco. So there's there's not an easy access to to seeing <laughs> to seeing good live things in 1985. So <laughs> so it was the VHS tape. <laughs> And um yeah, so it was it was the Truckee Rec Center. It was ballet tap and tumbling all in one class. And <laughs> and that was adventurous. <laughs> oh my god. I did the same thing with that video. Watched it over and over and yeah. over forever. Yeah, so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My parents still have it, which is a little scary, but also really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Do VCRs still exist? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I hope so. They Only do. in basements and attics. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I know I have one because I, I mean, that is how I have all of those PBS, Dance in America, you know, elusive muse. Like, you just can't find all that stuff. So, <laughs> so we've all got one in the basement. Yeah, the elusive muse documentary is now on sale on Amazon for $150. <laughs> That's how rare it is. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on to that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so how about you, Constantine? How did you get your start in dance? Well, I started dancing for a very large audience of stuffed animals in my bedroom as a child, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> led me into thinking I should go into musical theater until I realized that I had uh, absolutely no talent at singing whatsoever <laughs> and uh, was at a school called Walnut Hill uh, in Massachusetts in the theater department. And a man named Michael Owen, who was a former dancer for American Ballet Theater, took over the dance component of things there and offered to let me switch majors, which I did, and uh, never looked back. But so that meant I started fairly late. I think I was 14 when I decided to really start doing ballet classes, You sort of seriously six days a week. Um, wow. At which point it, Michael kind of gave me a, a warning, you know, it's all in right now or it's going to be too late. Um and I remember going home and asking my mother if she thought it was a good idea. And she said, well, you can always change bags. So, uh, <laughs> go for it. That is true. Next thing I knew, I was moving to Germany and joining a ballet company. So oh I don't gosh. think that's what she realized she was getting us all in for. But. So that, that would, that's uh, something we obviously want to talk about, too. Uh, how, what were your first steps into um, your professional career? Uh, we can start with you, Constantine, since you mentioned Germany. Was that you, the first company you danced with was in Germany? Yes. So when I finished high school, I was offered a spot to study under a choreographer named John Neumeyer, who's an American who moved early on to Germany himself, had danced for Stuttgart Ballet, and then uh, first became director of Frankfurt, and then has now been director of Hamburg Ballet for many, many decades and uh, is an absolute master of his craft. And it was, it was a huge, 
huge privilege. So I was there for two years uh, in Germany, and then I moved on to Royal Danish Ballet and was dancing with Royal Danish for just shy of a decade um, before transitioning into more modern and contemporary dance. Spent a year in the Netherlands working with Gross Dance with an Israeli choreographer named Sagi Gross, and more recently... I've been based out of Paris working with a woman named Carolyn Carlson. Um, what made you feel like it was time to step away from doing a full-time ballet company, um, you know, having that kind of career and then transitioning into something different? For me, it was about personal interest. I think my, my private interest as an audience member in dance has always been much larger than, let's say, the average ballet company uh, represents within their repertoire. And as much as I love the Tchaikovsky rep, as much as I love the neoclassical rep, um, I found myself yearning more and more f to get further and further afield into what was happening in the contemporary scene coming out of Israel, out of Taiwan, who was this city larby guy emerging? What was this incredible new blending of styles? And at some point, all of those interests really took over. And I think it was, um, you know, not that I am alone in this, but one of my huge, you know, people I look up to immensely is Yuri Killian. And he came to set a full-length program uh, at Royal Danish. And that was just sort of a watershed moment of how one can go about thinking of creation, rehearsal, the role of dance in a larger sense of life. So it was not, the performance was not something that began with a curtain going up and ending with it going down. And being a dancer was not something that started, you know, as soon as the pianist had preparations for plies. It was really a kind of life commitment. It was a way of being, um, and as I got further and further into all of that, um, the limitations of, I think there are necessary limitations around what a ballet company does because there's, you know, X number of shows they've got to get through a year, X number of pieces, you have to be trained in a certain way, there's a uniformity to the look. And as I grew up, I was less and less interested in sort of adhering to that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So Kristen, let's talk about your early career before you moved to New York City to start your freelance career. What was that time like for you? And how did you decide to make that jump to New York City and try your hand at being a freelancer? Oh, yes. Freelancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was very lucky. I grew up in a company that unfortunately no longer exists, um, but it was called Nevada Festival Ballet. And it was started by a woman named Maggie Banks, who had been in the Freddie Franklin generation at American Ballet Theater and um, had moved out west to work in Hollywood and, you know, choreographed the Andy Williams show um, and found herself in Reno, Nevada and, and started a ballet company. Um, you think elusive muse is hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so she 
The great part about that school and company was that I auditioned for Nutcracker at 12 and they they took me and they gave me a contract to sign that also said I was getting paid $250. Oh, wow. Um, and that was... <laughs> I've done jobs for less you, since you then. You can get beautiful duplexes in Manhattan for $250 bucks a month. Um, but it was... It, it really was a first, it was a first job. I mean, it, it taught me that, oh, this is, you know, I have, but there was not the ability to miss rehearsal for Susie's birthday party. Oh, um, no. <laughs> that no, no, was no. just not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we really did, you know, but she really did treat us as professionals. And that was, you know, I was one of those kids who just couldn't wait to be an adult. Um, so for me, that was, that was hugely rewarding. So, um, when that folded, she basically want. I mean, she was in her eighties. She, as she put it, she just wanted to walk her dogs. Um, and so the company folded shortly after she left because she was just such a strong leader and founder that, you know, she was sort of irreplaceable, but that was when I was 17. Um, and I moved to the Bay area and accepted an apprenticeship with Oakland ballet. Um, and at that time it was in transition and the contract only went from September through Nutcracker. Um, so a lot Mm. of people who had taken the contract were New York freelancers and, um, after that season, I was pretty clear that I didn't want to stay in the Bay Area, didn't want to stay at that company. Um, and so basically moved to New York with a couple hundred bucks and moved into a friend's, I think it was meant to be a closet, but it was, <laughs> it was a bedroom. <laughs> it was a walk-in closet. Um, and so, you know, it was really just a matter of... I mean, I had spent, I think, every summer in New York since I was 14, so I was familiar with the city. But I think the other thing about being in Oakland, it wasn't so much the company, it was the environment of a big ballet company that I just, I think coming from a small town, a smaller company, it was like I always worked with people I was very close with and always did work that I was very interested in and just sort of... You know, being in a room from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. with all the same people and a lot of that inherent drama and Mm -hmm. politics, just I found myself really not enjoying it. And, you know, I I felt lucky at the time to realize I wasn't enjoying it and that if that was going to be what dancing professionally was, I wasn't into it. Um, You know, it's sort of like... (laughs) Yes, you want to make your passion your job, but then all of a sudden it just feels like a job. Then it takes the passion out of it. So, right. I, if I could just jump in and just say one little thing, because <laughs> Kristen and I have known each other a while. <laughs> and there have been many late night phone calls of <laughs> what we saved on therapy bills. Let's put it that way. But uh, I think both of us have had separate but similar journeys with our dancing in terms of trying to figure out for us what what was dance and what was the what was our dance what was the dance that we really wanted to it's so hard it's so hard on everyone in the field and if you're not absolutely passionate about it 
you burn out so quickly. And so I think we've both been on this, this and continue to be on this journey of figuring out what is it that truly speaks to us. Right. Um, and, and, and how to bob and weave to find that and make that possible. I, I think, I wonder if uh, more dancers don't take this leap, but would, because they are, they have this in the back of their head that, you know, they need the financial security that um, a larger company can offer, but they are cutting themselves off from that sort of artistic autonomy that you get as a, a freelancer or someone who, you know, can go project to project. I would say that's certainly been true when I think of the people I've known over the years in the dance world. Um, however, given these sort of artistic austerity times we're in, it's a problem that may be taking care of itself because I think those larger companies that one joins right out of school and you hear the previous generations that you did, they would stay with one choreographer or under one director at one company for their entire careers, that there are just less and less of those opportunities. Um, so I think for those remaining in the field, uh, one becomes a jack of all trade out of necessity, if nothing else. Sure. I mean, I mean, from, you know, from... Ashley Bowder to what Sarah Mearns is doing now from Wendy's. To, I mean, even the people that are in those top secure positions still seek out variety on a, you know, on, on a personal project basis. So I think that says something too. I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of curiosity amongst dancers now, which is really nice to see as opposed to just being thankful to have a job and stand in B plus for 25 years. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Um, so you guys mentioned that you've known each other for a really long time and you obviously have a wonderful chemistry together. How did your paths first cross as dancers? A choreographer told Kristen to run and jump at me. <laughs> <laughs> and that is true. And that's and true. And it may have ended up with me on the floor. <laughs> Because I had had zero partner in classes. And so had I. <laughs> ah, that's so funny. And that teacher is now coming to the festival this summer to teach Kristen's students. <laughs> so Which is magical. Continues. Yeah, it was it was at the ABT summer program in the very beginnings of the ABT summer program, um, long before they had what is now the big JKO school. Right. Um and it's funny that that sort of fits into what we're talking about in this theme of, you know, um, Rebecca Wright had, it seems like, basically called a bunch of former ABT soloists and dancers and said, hey, let's have a summer program. And it had this really cool vibe at that time where it wasn't really a school. It wasn't necessarily that formal. <laughs> and That may have been more us than the program. <laughs> there may have been a few classes that were missed because interesting Wednesday matinees were happening and <laughs> students might have been in line at the TKTS booth. <laughs> but my memory is a little fuzzy. <laughs> 
Well, I will say that compared to what the ABT school and curriculum and everything is now, I think it seems less formal. Like we weren't, we weren't in uniforms. It wasn't like you must teach this step before you teach that step. Right. But um, yeah, so in any case, we, we had a full day of classes and then they put on a program. So, um, so we were being choreographed on by Daniel Boundistel and it was literally like 6.55 when he said, Kristen, run and jump on Constantine. And I, I mean, I'm 5'8". I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a sprite. <laughs> and yeah, I basically just and ran I'm and knocked sure him over. I'm not sure I'd really gone through puberty. <laughs> so yeah, as I remember it, we sort of both ended up on the floor and the rehearsal ended in basically that moment. And we sort of looked at each other and said, like, do you have dinner plans? <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> And yeah, so we've we've been pretty tight ever since. But your paths have crossed again as dancers, right? In your professional careers and your freelancing careers. Yeah, so I was my my main gig um, when I moved to New York. I started working with a choreographer named Miro Magloire, who was a pianist and composer and was trying his hand at choreography and that has now evolved. Well, I say now it's been going for 12 years. Um, but now that is new chamber ballet. Um, and so he was creating his own works, um, just on, you know, a few of us as dancers and presenting evenings that had, you know, three or four of his works alone. Um, and at this, t- this was at the time when Constantine was in Hamburg. And so he'd come back every summer. And I suggested to Miro that it might be interesting to have. I think I was in Copenhagen. No, it was in Hamburg. It was in the very beginning. But anyway, so he would have all summer off. <laughs> you sound like and I Rebecca s- right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, what was happening in 2005? <laughs> um, and so I said, you know, I have a I have a friend who who's you know dabbling in in making work, and you know, could we maybe do something and present it in the program? And he said yes. So uh, that was that was New Chamber Ballet's first guest choreographer, and it was really just you know exactly what we're saying, like born out of friendship, and you know, hey, let's do this thing. Um, so yeah, so we just kind of started there. All right. So, Constantine, how did you first become interested in choreography? Was there a particular moment where you realized, oh, I kind of have like a mind and eye for creating steps or an interest in this? I think, oddly, when, when I look back, I didn't understand it at the time, but that appealed to me even before the dancing itself appealed to me. Mm. The watching dance, the creating dance, the uh, learning about dance history, kind of going through the archives, seeing these phenomenally theatrical old black and white photos, getting into studios, coming up with stuff to music. And then came the technique classes and, you know, the interest in performing and so forth. Um, so, And that, that desire to create never never left me. Um, that said, I don't think it really started to manifest itself until, until after I was in a company established, had started working with different choreographers, seen different methodologies about how to, you know, various ways of how to create, how to think about a body on a stage, 
what does that mean in different people's uh, points of view? Um, and at some point after I had been with Royal Danish for a few years, together with a colleague named Cedric Lambrecht, we founded a group called Cross Connection. And Cross Connection was something that every year we would bring together five ballet dancers and five contemporary dancers and have choreographers create work for this team um, that was very, you know, custom made for that team of 10. Uh, and we would do four creations a year. There'd be a sort of a line, through, you know, a red thread through the program. There'd be a theme that everyone was working off of, but they could interpret it however they wanted. Out of cross-connection was born something called the Copenhagen International Choreography Competition. And this summer, we're going into our 12th edition of that. Wow. And that was originally, um, we were coming up against this issue where we were sort of fighting the same handful of names of people who are just starting out choreographing who won and we were interested in working with, they were interested in working with us, but they were all coming from the same institutions. And we thought there must be more voices out there, but right. how do we find them and where are they? And it's such a, you know, where's the Craigslist for, you know, choreographer <laughs> wanted. <laughs> um, and, and so we put together this event. Uh, we were lucky enough at the time through the stars aligning to find a foundation that was willing to back this crazy idea from these crazy kids. Mm -hmm. And we wound up inviting 10 choreographers from around the world to Copenhagen, putting together a jury of festival directors, artistic directors of dance companies, etc. And the mission was really to try and help people who were not within the system already get into the sort of European opera house system of getting commissions, having their work presented, um, being able to break through. And we realized very quickly on that there was really a need for that. Not that we were the only people who'd ever thought of it, but, um, but that was, there was a huge desire to participate in that, which really flabbergasted us. Um, so then we really thought, okay, well, if, if so many people are kind of banging on our door knowing this exists, then it must really be something that the universe is saying we should do. And, mm -hmm. uh, and 12 years later, we're still doing it. And how many submissions were there? This, this year? year? Oh, I probably shouldn't say numbers I don't have in front of me, but <laughs> more than 300. Wow. Oh, which wow. when you're vetting every single one, <laughs> many hours of watching dance. What are the age ranges there? Are they mostly like students or mostly professionals or what's What's the variety there? We do ask that, that applicants have professional experience, and that can be performance experience. It doesn't need to be choreographic experience. Um, but I'd say we, the youngest we've accepted, I think we did have a student from Juilliard two or three years back. We have had a student who came in from SUNY Purchase. Those, so let's I'm going to just go out on a limb and let's say around 20-ish would be the youngest. Right. And the oldest we've gone 
would probably be around 40, 45. It's so cool. Uh, because we are a place for emerging choreographers. I mean, we are very... We had all of these debates in the beginning about it's art. How can you merge competition with art and, you know, how can you negotiate apples and oranges and sure. say which is better? And where? But at the end of the day, that f framing of a competition allowed for funding it allowed for audiences to wrap their heads around what was going on so for us internally it was always more like an art gallery it was like a group show at an art gallery where you go in and you see many different people's works and approaches to how they go about it um and then the competition aspect was really about uh, how do we package this in such a way that people can wrap their heads around it who aren't maybe used to going to a theater and seeing 10 different styles of dance from 10 countries coming out of 10 different traditions mm -hmm. uh, right. within two hours. I, I just think it's so amazing how I just think it's such a, a dancerly thing that, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're so it, it has to, it instills in you a sense of like discipline and hard work and grit and determination that you can just like build something out of nothing the way you've done. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you finish that 11 p.m. <laughs> Sleeping Beauty and then the night you're like back at the computer doing the press release. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, And it's I mean, it's we keep touching on it, but I think it is that same curiosity. And that's the curiosity that got us all dancing in the beginning. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, this brings us to the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival, thinking about building something from the ground up. So, Kristen, before you launched launch the festival, you returned home to Lake Tahoe and began teaching local children. You eventually opened a studio and then established a nonprofit called the Lake Tahoe Dance Collective. Did you have ambitions to grow this project as far as you have, or did it just kind of start as a small idea and then just continual like snowball effect to become something bigger? Well... I mean, essentially growing up there, um, I was the only dancer in my, in my whole community. Um, you know, my parents drove me an hour every day back and forth to ballet class. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just a total like weirdo. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so that was extremely isolating for me. I mean, to look back at it now to say like that was that was decently traumatic um, <laughs> to just be. I mean, I'm named after a ski racer. It is a town of rock climbers and, you know, Olympic athletes. And, and that's great. But right. when you're not that, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, being on the East Coast and. I think it really hit me the first time I performed at Jacob's Pillow on the outdoor stage. And Jacob's Pillow is beautiful. The Berkshires are beautiful. Right. But I remember thinking, like, I come from a really gorgeous place and we have nothing like that. Yeah. And we don't have the mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or the fireflies. Or the fireflies. Oh. But, um, <laughs> you know, so it was really, I mean... On the West Coast, you know, you just don't hear about things like summer stock theaters. It's just a right. different culture. Um, and so to be able to create something, you know, 
the two prong idea of be able to offer the opportunity to local kids that, you know, I didn't have in our town, um, but also to offer this beautiful place for guest artists to come and perform. And, you know, it's something we were discussing last night, like, you know, a few generations ago, Nuri Evan Fontaine performed everywhere. You know, they traveled the country by train and went to every little town and spread the word and, you know, everybody got to see them. Um, and, you know, in a place like Lake Tahoe, it's not coming to you. And if you don't seek it out, you don't know it exists. Um, so it was really about, you know, providing opportunities for my choreographer and dancer friends and having them work with these kids. So it's um, it's pretty magical. Yeah. I did sort of have the same gusto that I had in moving to New York of like, <laughs> I'm going to go home and do this thing. <laughs> You have to, right? Yes. When you asked your question, <laughs> Kristen, did you envision? I could just see the answer being yes. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, not everyone can do something like that. So, what made you decide that it was time to bring Constantine on as part of this project as well? Um, aside from being my best friend and getting him to come visit me. Yeah. Um, well, so I started, um, we started out as Tahoe Youth Ballet in 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had, you know, from the beginning we had guest choreographers and, and artists and, um, you know, we dappled a little bit with an outdoor perform. I mean, our town doesn't even have a theater still. Um, so... <laughs> It really is building from the ground up. Oh, my God. Um, so you guys just build the outdoor theater every year for the shows? Yeah, we actually, oh. in the beginning, we used to rent, like, portable stage panels that would be right. two grand a pop. Yep. And wow. beg whatever <laughs> ballet fathers or oh, whoever yeah. would come help <laughs> us put it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we we eventually did a capital campaign and fundraise to purchase our own stage panels so we wouldn't still be renting them. So right, yeah, right. we are like a traveling road show. It's, oh my gosh, it's really cute. Should, for those who don't know, maybe we should just say really quick, we partner with the with a really generous state park there that gives us land outdoors. So right on the shores of Lake Tahoe, we set up an outdoor stage. And then yes. people are invited to bring uh, picnic blankets or low back chairs or whatever um so when we say we set up the stage it is an outdoor portable stage that's then reinforced and uh, yeah that's yeah so cool so, yeah so that formally happened uh, you know just kind of in the conversation of what performances and when to bring people in right. um the idea of a summer festival you know seemed seemed easy to wrap our heads around and Lake Tahoe is fairly seasonal. Um, so, you know, it's that's when everybody comes to visit and our, our population grows and there's there's more ability to have a wider audience reached. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So what was the initial programming like when you started the festival? How did you sort of build out your ideas um, in terms of the artists you wanted involved and the repertoire you wanted to show the community? Can I, can I jump in before we exactly answer that? A million percent. Address, Absolutely. Address something that sort of leads, leads up to it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which is really something Kristen taught me because I grew up outside of Boston. Um, when you're growing up, you kind of don't, 
really know about growing up anywhere else, right? You have your one experience when you're a child. And I was very lucky and I could take the commuter rail in and I had parents who were, you know, my mother was a novelist. My father was very supportive of the arts. They were totally fine with me kind of grabbing the train at 14 and going to see whatever traveling dance company at the Wang Center and not getting home until midnight. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, it was Chris who really taught me, like, yeah, we didn't all have that. Yeah. We didn't all have the access to the education, the access to even know where to begin looking, right. that these things existed. You did, This was pre-internet days. Mm -hmm. But even with the internet, I find going out sometimes to Tahoe with the younger students, the internet's amazing. But if you don't know who Stravinsky and Picasso and Balanchine and these people are, you don't even know where to begin. You don't right. know to look for it. Yeah, exactly. So a huge part of Tahoe was also about this question that's happening in America right now with the arts of these metropolises, these incredible cosmopolitan cities where all of this amazing breeding ground cross-pollination of artistic mediums is going on, but then there are these gulfs. Um, and what do you do if you're a kid in one of those gulfs who has that sixth sense that they want to know about this, that, but who do I turn to? Who can be the mentor? Who can sort of point me in the right direction? And so I'll allow Krista to totally get into the programming and the repertoire, who was invited, da-da-da. But it, that, that thing that she taught me was so much the foundation of the festival. Mm -hmm. What's important about, about sharing the arts and allowing more parts of America's youth into, into this uh, glorious life endeavor. Mm -hmm. Love that. That's great. So Kristen, now you can answer the question. <laughs> 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 oh, um, yeah, what I, you know, and it's funny, I'd like to say that I really schemed about it in my head, but it just sort of came out of me. When I first moved back and first started bringing things, I wanted to, you know, not just be a ballet company and present four ballets, but you know, I always, I try to always have, I always say like something barefoot, something tutu, <laughs> you know, give us, <laughs> yeah. give us a little, give us a variety. Um, and that goes for the experience that I'm giving my dancers, but it also goes for the experience I'm giving my audience. Right. Um, for the most part, we are not performing for dance connoisseurs. You know, we will have, you know, there's a few people in our community who study dance in college or whatever, but, you know, it's really, they come to a performance usually knowing nothing. And so my feeling has always been that in the programming, you educate them about dance and... Right. Ask them, okay, what, what, oh, I liked the barefoot piece. Oh, why, you know, why do you think that was? Mm -hmm. um, so we always look at the festival as this balance of, you know, kind of like a, like a sampling menu of what you, what you want to see 
whether or you're not, you are a complete dance connoisseur to give a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually opened, mm, excuse me. <clears throat> we actually opened the first dance festival, um, with the first movement of Serenade. Uh, um, I mean, and we, well, well, exactly. And primarily from the fact that I think a lot of people nowadays forget that that was performed outside by, by student. students. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was the first piece he made. Yeah. Once so, he it, here. yeah. So it, it just felt like a, a smart thing to start with. And, um, the Balanchine Trust was very generous, and one of my favorite anecdotes about that is that the contract they gave us granted it to us as a culturally underserved area. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and where I'm very close with Deborah Wingert, mm-hmm. um, who works with the Trust, and so she came out and said it. And uh, in the way that that piece is so magical, it, it really did feel like something very wonderful. And I'm running around Tahoe saying, we're doing Serenade, we're doing Serenade, we're doing Balanchine, and then saying, Balanchine started New York City Ballet. (laughs) He's a big deal. Balanchine was a man (laughs) who choreographed. And so I started, I got in the habit of saying, you know that painting, the Mona Lisa? It's like that coming here. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love when you when you've been talking about the range of what you want to bring, it makes total sense with your mission of how you're you are trying to you're thinking of yourself as a little kid and how you were didn't have the um, access that kids that live in more urban areas do. And so, of course, if you only were to bring tutus, then you are kind of uh, denying children that might have their imagination sparked by only the barefoot pieces. So you're giving your audience an education that is full and rounded out that way so that they could go any direction. That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And, and my, you know, my students, uh, my prerequisite for, you know, performing with with our school and company Mm -hmm. is that you work hard. Um, you know, and I think I was listening to um, your interview with Monica. Oh, I love she Monica. So so. Oh, I love Moni. We've I've known her for a long time. Oh, nice. um, <laughs> and she said it so well, you know, I mean, you have a variety of bodies in the room as students. And, you know, just as we as dancers learn that we connect more with modern work or ballet, you know, you want to find something that highlights each dancer and shows them that not everybody has to fit in the five foot five, you know, tutu mold. And so that really benefits everybody. And it teaches them as young people that, you know, you'll find, you'll find your space in the world. You you don't have to just conform to one thing. And I think a huge, one of the things that we were very, when we were kind of throwing around the idea of the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival before it ever existed was role models. You know, what's, right. what's the role model institution, place, moment, pocket in time that, that we want to mold ourselves in the, in the footprints of? And we kept coming back to Jacob's Pillow. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of a place that was 
almost a sanctuary for dance, you know, away from the pressures of, you know, the huge New York opening, away from everybody immediately having an opinion and getting back to a sort of almost Garden of Eden-like nature and just uh, almost like a holistic approach of eat together, sleep in a barn, Mm -hmm. dance on grass, just go and create. I just create and just see what happens and be fearless mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. That is totally fine. Yeah. But you've got to do it. It's the everyday mm-hmm. doing that will one day take you to that amazing moment where it all comes together and does work. Um, and then looking, you know, at the pillow and at various other uh, festivals and organizations and repertoires, what ends up happening with with Tahoe's programming in general is that you can break down the presentations into three sort of larger categories. And one tends to be the sort of more traditional, let's say, balletic work, mm-hmm. but, but certainly um, traditional. Then there becomes the sort of American modernist breakthrough work. So... That's, you know, the Eric Hawkins company, we have a very good relationship with. He was the husband of Martha Graham and also an incredible choreographer in his own right. Um, Jose Limon work, all of the, you know, the sort of great moment that happened um, mid-century. And then what's happening now? And that's a lot of bringing artists in to create. That's a lot about this era we are in of of mediums coming together, be they different kinds of dance styles, be they dance and technology, be whatever that is, whether they become more installation works that start to leave the stage and take, you know, begin to interact, break that fourth wall with the audience, uh, whether they become works inspired by, say, Trisha Brown's visual art pieces, right, where the kids are just covered in, what was that thing I made you guys do and you wanted to kill me afterwards because the studio was covered in paint? Ah. Where they were doing on the feet, oh, yeah. the, on the paper that we displayed. It's, you know, created huge nets in, in the forest where audience members were blindfolded and what? could just put their fingers on the string. So the dancers had to take them through. So they had to learn what is it to be in a space Wow! and, and use sensation and the body and the senses beyond sight to feel and organize with one another. And when the, the, the web was plucked, you would move things like that. So, to try to give audience members a whole, you know, a whole range of ways of understanding that this art form is so beautifully layered and it has so many offshoots and branches one can go down uh, athletically, virtuosically, music visualization, sensation stuff, right. and uh, and find what it is that, that excites you the individual that's so cool am i mishearing it sounds like there are literal birds chirping and it's taking me to the lake tahoe dance festival and <laughs> outside. yeah absolutely <laughs> well when we start lake tahoe dance festival east it'll be, uh, <laughs> Valley. so um 
But yes, those are, we are looking on a bucolic scene of pond and field and garden yeah. and birds. And yeah. <laughs> hence the coyotes earlier howling. <laughs> um, so for our last question, uh, we'd love to just get a preview about uh, what works and um, dancers will be involved this year for the festival. So we have a really, I, I don't know, every year I feel like, oh, this is the best lineup ever. Um, <laughs> That's good. So Constantine mentioned the Hawkins Company. Um, so Catherine Duke, we are honoring at this year's gala. She was a dancer in the Hawkins Company and now... I believe she was the final dancer Eric hired. I think so. Before he... But don't... Yeah. I believe. <laughs> we believe. Allegedly. <laughs> um, in... And Catherine is just this incredible artist tour de force. And, you know, she's tasked with, you know, keeping this legend alive of Eric's work that's, you know, not really paid as much attention to as some of the other mid-century modern people that, you know, stay in the foreground. Um, and so she is choreographing a duet for herself and um, Christina Berger, who we have, um, who's one of our regular teaching faculty every summer. Um, so we have them. We also have... Do um, we have Horton on the program this year? We've nope. It's just the Um we also have kind of in the same vein of things that aren't seen very much, which is another big part of what we like to present. Um, Stephen Hanna and Abby Stafford are working with the Agnes DeMille Trust and presenting an excerpt from Agnes DeMille's The Other, um, which was the final work she made. And she ma it, was, it was presented then in 1993, um, by American Ballet Theater and has been done maybe twice since then. You know, and it's funny because Stephen and I had this conversation. I've always, Agnes's work is something that I haven't had enough chances to see. Mm -hmm. And he brought it up to me and I said, yeah, you know, how come we're in this moment of female choreographers and, you know, female leaders in the arts and everything, but no one's talking about Agnes DeMille? Yeah. So um, we, we felt... We, we should say <laughs> there is a major revival of Oklahoma up right now that just won a Tony. And yes. The I, program <laughs> opens with the choreographer saying, thank you, Agnes DeMille. I guess I want to say... Anything besides Oklahoma. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, this lady did some other stuff, too. <laughs> yes, no, but I'm pointing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of yeah. good. It's kind of a big deal. Um, so, and then, well, Constantine can speak more to the Jacopo Godani piece. But. Uh, yes, and then uh, we have two dancers from the Frankfurt Dresden Dance Company coming to do a duet of Jacopo Gadani's. Uh, Gadani is an Italian choreographer who inherited what had been William Forsythe's company, but they decided to slightly rename uh, when it was handed from uh, Forsythe to Gadani. And so they will be doing a sort of, uh, how best, to, a beautiful, beautiful, wild animalistic duet that I'm obsessed with. <laughs> um, 
And then we... There then is, we have a work of Constantine's on the program. Yay! There's a piece of mine that was inspired by uh, Hilme Clint. I'm not sure if either of you uh, were able to go and see the show at the Guggenheim this year of the Swedish painter Hilme Clint, who was recently rediscovered and uh, whose work is now touring the world and totally changing sort of the art history curriculum on its head because people are now realizing she was working in full-blown abstraction before Kandinsky and uh, absolutely phenomenal artist in her own right. Anyway, that inspired, uh, I was asked to do a farewell solo for a ballerina named Tracy Finch, um, and we created a work to Thomas Adez's Darkness Visible. Um, so that will be on the program. And then Holly Curran is dancing a work of Roya Carreras. Um, it's actually going to be a full-length premiere in t 2020. Um, but Holly is doing an excerpt of what they're working on. So that's pretty much yeah. our I round believe they're out. developing material for the full length now, and they will shape what they're working on into a presentation for the for this summer. Yeah. Fantastic. And Tracy Finch, Tracy Finch, who is the ballerina in Constantine's piece, mm -hmm. um, she is also creating a work on... Um, one of my dancers, who was actually the, the very first generation of my students, um, who is coming to work with Damian Johnson. Um, so they'll be, that's kind of our on site creation this you summer. You probably say who Damian Johnson is. Damian Johnson has danced with Ballet Black and Suzanne Farrell Ballet, and I think he's. An all-around superhuman. <laughs> we all love Damien. He's also Damien. And the great. Yes. 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 Exactly. <laughs> we yes, love Damien. Anybody who doesn't know Damien. <laughs> yeah. Get yeah. to know him. <laughs> so, yeah, get to know him. Look him up. Um, He's a great Pilates teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. And then we're, I'm sure, going to come up with something crazy together with the students, as we always do, some sort of installation. But, and we'll see what that is as it develops. Well, and that's important to mention, too. We, we do three weeks of workshop going into the festival with students 10 and up. And um, so they take a ballet class, a modern class, an improv class, and then they learn rep. Um, so they actually perform right alongside all these people. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, our teacher, Daniel Bowden-Distel, is creating a work for the students this summer. So it's that's always a really special part of it. Last last summer, we had Ashley Bowder do a solo that had been created in her Ashley Bowder project. And um, the kids performed right after her. And they were standing on the side of the stage, and one of them tugged on my arm and said, why do we have to follow her? <laughs> Just, I would have asked that too. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Well, it yeah. sounds like such an incredible lineup you have for this year. And Rebecca and I are so sad to miss it, but we will be out there eventually because you guys have really uh, set this up as something that I think any dance lover needs to make an appearance at. 
Well, thank you. And we, we do it every summer. So we'll, we'll put it in your calendar and get you out there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so, so much for your time. It was so great chatting with you. Thank, thank you. you. And married for the festival. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you are new to the podcast, we invite you to click available episodes in your favorite podcast app to explore our catalog of over 140 episodes with some of the most influential people in the ballet and dance world. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. New episodes of Conversations on Dance go live every Monday. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.